is Rusty Reno, the editor of First Things Magazine. Welcome to the Editor's Desk, our regular podcast where we look at material in the latest First Things Magazine. And for this episode, I'm talking to Michael Millerman, the author of Beginning with Heidegger, Strauss, Rory, Derrida, Dugan, and the Philosophical Constitution of the Political. And Michael has penned for us in the February 2023 issue an essay on Alexander Dugan, the many think to be the Rasputin to Vladimir Putin, and it's appropriately titled Alexander Dugan Explained. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for having me. Alexander Dugan, who is this guy, like name, rank, serial number, background, that sort of thing? Okay, for people who don't know, a helpful way of thinking about him is that he's a Russian philosopher, ideologue, and activist. So he combines several functions that sometimes are parceled out among several people. In other cases, he has books that are, you could say, purely theoretical or very philosophical, somehow abstract and not directly related to political life. And on the opposite extreme of the spectrum, he has works that are meant to shape the direction of Russian foreign policy, Russia's place in the world geopolitically, and that are effectively ideological manuals for the Russian government if it's looking for some sort of worldview to follow, which lately, as I think we see, it has some sort of worldview that it's trying to follow. Uh, so he has been instrumental in shaping a vision for Russia in a multipolar world. He opposed what happened to Russian policy after the victory of uh, liberalism, as he sees it, the unipolar moment, the dominance of the United States in the world. So he's been developing in geopolitics, in other branches of thought, ethnosociology, for example, theology as well, political theory, an alternative model to Western political modernity, bo both, as I say, with its intellectual interest and with its political component. And uh, he became famous, among other things, in 2014. He was famously dubbed Putin's brain, again, because of his role as a legitimizer of Russia's activity in eastern Ukraine, and uh, all the more so lately, especially with the assassination of his daughter and the new round of hostilities between Russia and Ukraine. He's the figure that people try to, if, they, if you want to crack the code of Russia's worldview, assuming that it has one that differs from the American, you turn to people like Dugan to understand what's going on in that uh, view of the world. Tell us about your first encounter with Dugan. It's a wonderful story. So I was an undergraduate studying philosophy at the University of British Columbia. And my background interests at the time were in mysticism. That was my first interest, mystical thinkers. I was reading them even before I started studying as an undergraduate. Then when I started studying philosophy as an undergrad, we were reading Plato's Republic. So the figure of the philosopher king became mm -hmm. very interesting and, and uh, relevant to me. I also thought there was a connection between mysticism and political philosophy at the time. And because my family's from the former Soviet Union, there was also this third dimension of an interest in Russian thought. So what is it? What is the history of Russian mysticism and what is Russian political thought? And all of these things coalesced, the mysticism, political philosophy of a platonic kind, and the question of Russia, when I read an article in Azure, Ideas for the Jewish Nation, I think is the name of the journal, now defunct. And this was an article on Dugin as Russia's philosopher king, Russia's mystical philosopher king, in effect. So these three interests coalesced, and that article just sparked all of my interest. 
I went and I looked him up online. I saw a short lecture of his called The Fourth Political Theory. It was about five minutes long. This was in 2000, probably 2010 or 2011. And I noticed he had a book called The Fourth Political Theory. I proposed to translate it as an undergrad, again, working on brushing up my philosophical vocabulary in Russian. And that translation overlapped with Putin's announcement of a Eurasian Union. In other words, just as I was translating Dugan's fourth political theory book, it was clear that Russia's adopting some of those ideas or really implementing some of those ideas on the world stage. And that just produced a lot of excitement for myself and my supervisor. And I just continued translating Dugan from that point on for a decade. I no doubt read your translation. I'm sure it's the only one exists in English. That's right. So I should say... Just one quick word here of clarification. Uh, there was somebody else was translating the fourth political theory at the same time as I was, unbeknownst to me. Mm. And just as the publisher uh, found out that I was doing the work, my supervisor had said, you should reach out about getting this published. They took part of my translation. They combined it with part of the other person's translation. So the fourth political theory that's out in English, I'm the co-translator. I didn't do that one start to finish. I'm the co-translator. It was combined with somebody else's. But the remaining chapters that weren't published in that book, were published separately as The Rise of the Fourth Political Theory. So just to give credit where it's due, there were two people in on the first book that way. I read it for the reason that exactly as you said, which I became aware that there was this philosopher king figure in the Russian realm. I was aware that Putin was positioning Russia as the leader of, the, of, the, of a kind of coalition against sort of the soulless liberal order dominated by America. And I thought, wow, I, I should really try to understand what, like what this mentality is. So exactly to your point. So help us, the listeners, what, what is the fourth political theory? So at the elementary level, it's a rejection of liberalism, communism, and fascism and their variants. That's what Dugan calls the first political theory, liberalism, second political theory, communism, third political theory, fascism, or Nazism. He treats them both under the rubric of the third political theory. And he says, basically, the 20th century was a war between these ideological positions. Liberalism came out victorious. And when it did so, there was no ground on which to oppose it any longer, because the reflex is to oppose liberalism either as a communist or as a fascist to go to to go back to some previous and now sort of refuted political theory or ideology but dugan poses the question is it possible to develop a thoughtful alternative to liberalism outside of the model of the three political theories and that by itself in my view when i first encountered it and still is a liberating thought because we still see the tendency, I think, um, for people to have recourse to the older ideological alternatives and not necessarily to think through what it means that that period has passed and that you need a new, possibly need a new foundation for understanding liberalism and the alternatives to it. So Dugan, that's the, I call that the negative part of his project. The fourth political theory is defined by the fact that it's not liberalism, not communism and not fascism. And then the positive part, the constructive side of his theory, it has various dimensions to it. But for example, he says we could go through liberalism, communism, and fascism. And once we've undone them as coherent ideological models where every piece is related to the other in a sort of essential way, then we can pick and choose certain topics and certain themes once the ideological electrical charge has been removed from each of those political theories. You can go to specific 
topics in each of them and have a kind of patchwork alternative or take up certain notions. So for example, he has a reinterpretation of freedom, which obviously for liberalism is an important notion, but he interprets it differently. From fascism, he borrows or incorporates the category of the ethnos. So Dugan has a book called Ethnosociology, where he develops a sociological model on the basis that the ethnos is the simplest social form. Incidentally, I translated that book also into English. It's available as two volumes, Ethnos and Society and Ethnosociology, the Foundations. And from communism, he also has a critique of capitalism. He has some other things that he borrows from communism. But he rejects, for example, the progressive nature of time implied in communist thought, the historical materialism gets rejected. From fascism, racism gets rejected. Statism gets rejected. From liberalism, the focus on the individual gets rejected. So it's an intellectual operation. What do we need to discard and what can be preserved? But the deeper formulation, the one that I focus on in this essay that I wrote and the one that's a large part of my research into Dugan's significance for political philosophy is his view that the fourth political theory needs a philosophical foundation and that the philosophical foundation, the best option open to a serious thinker today is to have Heidegger serve as the philosophical foundation. In other words, Dugan argues that liberalism, communism, and fascism, despite all their differences, have in common that they're modern ideologies, that they share some basic presuppositions of modernity. And that if you're challenging those basic presuppositions, then you lose all three political theories at once. And you need to find a new footing, a new place to stand. He's got several books on Heidegger. And in those books, he makes his case for why he thinks especially in Russia, but not only in Russia, thinking about an alternative to liberalism must take the serious confrontation with Heidegger as a starting point. It's not a position, it's not an uncommon position. You cite Leo Strauss's observation that Heidegger was the kind of the, the genuinely innovative thinker of the 20th century, the modern era. Other people certainly have argued that one had to grapple with Heidegger fundamentally. It's funny because, you know, we, you know, for listeners who don't know about Heidegger, you know, was a figure who, who kind of came to prominence with the book Being in Time, I think it was published in 1927. And many people think we ought not to read Heidegger because he had an extended flirtation with the Nazis, was a, mem a member of, of, the, of the party, served as rector of University of Freeborg, I think it was, and under Nazi, and gave a famous address where he thought that Nazism was fulfilling some of his his own philosophical <laughs> ideas, although he repented of that later on, it seems. Nevertheless, he, his Heidegger endured as a figure that really basically, I think, you know, many major, Richard Rorty in the United States, the French post-structuralists, and then, you know, German philosophy, obviously, as well. Yeah, so I think we could acknowledge Heidegger's central importance for political theorists, but that means that we have the opportunity to look to see what's distinct and unique about Dugan's appropriation of Heidegger. Hmm. And here, I think, is where the key difference comes in, because, yes, Strauss, for example, acknowledged Heidegger's significance as a philosopher. He did so in a way that's clear that Heidegger is the philosopher for Strauss, but Strauss also was, as it were, oblique in his references to Heidegger for the most part. And his confrontation with Heidegger is sometimes 
between the lines, sometimes circuitous, and certainly it takes place, all things considered, within a defense of liberal democracy. Even though he acknowledges the limitations of liberal democracy, even though he acknowledges the need to recover the classics, even though Strauss acknowledges all the risks of modern technological society in leveling man, in uprooting man, and worst, worst of all, in degrading man's education, the topic of the greatest concern for Strauss. So even though he has a critical attitude towards some of the tendencies, still his engagement with Heidegger takes place, I think, in the context of a defense of liberal democracy. Mm-hmm. Dugan's is completely different. So now we say, okay, well, there are other receptions of Heidegger that were outside of a defense of liberalism. That's true, but they were on the left. So they incorporated all the deconstructive, all the emancipatory, all the kind of, as it were, nihilistic, or certainly deconstructive components of Heidegger's thought. I think Derrida is a brilliant example. I have nothing against him. I think he's well worth reading. And even specifically on the topic of Heidegger, Derrida is well worth reading. But still, Rorty, social democratic reception. Strauss, liberal democratic reception. Derrida, let's say, some other type of reception. So now we have Dugan, Dugan's Heidegger. Yes, it acknowledges Heidegger's centrality, but it puts the emphasis in completely different areas of Heidegger's thought. It puts the emphasis, I would say, almost exactly on the areas that all of the other receptions tried to, <laughs> uh, they tried to erase from the picture or they tried to reduce or exclude from our understanding of Heidegger. In other words, Derrida, for example, is always worried that if we accept certain notions of Heidegger's thought, we're a few slippage moments away from reactionary politics, from fascistic politics, from Nazism, from all of that, from the self-referential closed political system of a fascist brotherhood of blood and soil. Okay, to exaggerate slightly. But those parts of Heidegger's thought that go that way, Derrida might say, and Rorty might say, they need to be treated ironically. They need to be treated not as a account of man's essential nature or not as account of the destiny of being. No, no, just as metaphors that could be shaped and reshaped in a more progressive or in a more, as I say, emancipatory spirit. Dugan's understanding of Heidegger, the text that he works with, the order that he places on Heidegger's thought, in other words, what he, in his first, just to give, just to be very clear about what I mean. In his first book on Heidegger, which is available in English, I'm not the translator, it's called Martin Heidegger, Philosophy of Another Beginning. Dugan starts with the middle period of Heidegger's thought, Mm -hmm. the period that has to do with the history of being, the view that being itself has a history. This history has played itself out as philosophy from its beginning to its end in Nietzsche, and that we now stand on the cusp of and in great need of another beginning of philosophy. He then turns to another notion of Heidegger's thought called the fourfold, and only in the third part of his book does he turn to Dasein. And he knows, he writes about this, that typically, let's say American or Western, broadly speaking, presentations of Heidegger's thought, they start in a completely different order. They start with Dasein. They sometimes yeah. never go beyond being in time. They sometimes that's, never go beyond the first division of being in time. That so that's my uh, that, introduction to Heidegger. We never got beyond Dasein. <laughs> Yeah, so never going beyond us and never going beyond being in time, never sometimes getting beyond the first division of being in time. In other words, the first, uh, you know, never turning from the first part of being in time to the second part. Uh, these are all, I think he's right about that. The difference, the mm-hmm. very deliberate difference in emphasis on which parts of Heidegger are regarded as central, how they relate to one another, and what the meaning of Heidegger's project is, Dugan gives us something new. So I agree with you. He's not the only person to have given Heidegger a place of importance, but because he's outside of the post-World War II reception history 
of Heidegger that has been so dominated by overzealous liberalism, one that's afraid to go to right-wing anti-liberalism for very obvious and understandable reasons, because he's outside of that, he's able, I argue, to show us something about Heidegger's philosophy that we wouldn't see otherwise. And I'm even willing to say that, you know, we don't end up with just Dugan's Heidegger, but he allows us to triangulate. You know, if all we had was Rorda, Derrida, and Strauss, we'd have something. But if we have Rorty, Derrida, Strauss, and Dugan, we have more. And given Heidegger's importance, we want more. We want as much as we can get to get into Heidegger's world as, as best as we can. So that's the philosophical level of my argument for Dugan's importance. The key theme that you, and you've already mentioned it, is inceptual thinking. And the notion that, and I, I, I agree uh, that certainly the French reception, deconstruction reception, is to emphasize the way in which Heidegger clears away, you know, the Platonic and subsequent Western philosophical tradition to make space for something new. And it sounds like Dugan wants to focus on trying to sort of till the soil of this this cleared away space to try to think about, okay. If we don't think about about what is real and what is true in in the usual way, how should we think about it? Is that fair? Inceptual thinking is it's not to invent things and impose them, but it, I think for Heidegger, it's to receive in some way, in a fresh way, the things that are real, and then to give them a an expression that's not shop worn and it, uh, complicit in the dead ends of the Western philosophical tradition. Yeah, I think that's fair to say. In Heidegger, there's a seeking, a sheltering, a preserving, a stewarding. So it's not like man is creating something from nothing. It's not in that sense, machinational or industrial or uh, technical. That's true. It's something that's received and preserved, but it's received from the deepest wellsprings of being or from the existential ground of our existence, however you want to put it, whatever formula, Heidegger has various formulas for it. When I first tried to differentiate these two approaches, I called them the Heideggerian left and the Heideggerian right at the time that I was working on this as an undergraduate initially. The formula for the Heideggerian left is they take Heidegger's destruction or deconstruction, what's called destruction of the history of philosophy. So he shows how each of the great thinkers, each of the mountains in the mountain range of metaphysics, to use one of his images, how each of these great thinkers had an answer to the question, what is being, but an answer that was gradually distorted, alienated, and uprooted from the original experience at the dawn of Western philosophical tradition. So somehow the door to being opens with the first thinkers of the West, but it begins to close as soon as Plato. And it closes and closes and closes all the way until we get to Nietzsche when it's completely closed, no more light is breaking through. So the Heideggerian left, they liked what Heidegger tells us about that process because they could use it to show about any concept or category, any essentialized you know, word with a capital letter, like truth with a capital T, essence with a capital mm -hmm. E. They could always say, look, we're going to give you the genealogy. We're going to give you the history. We're going to show you that this was the process of a, of a movement or something constructed that can be undone. And that allowed them to have some sandbox, a play area, a negative political theology. It's like two magnetic poles 
facing each other, where when you put anything in the center, it gets pushed away, displaced. So the whole, the whole uh, metaphysics of the Heideggerian left is one of displacement. You put something in the center and it gets pushed away. But Dugan's formula, he was my, he was for me the only figure of the Heideggerian right, but we can imagine it more broadly, is destruction plus inception, the end plus the beginning. And that's not something that Dugan forces onto the text because Heidegger has long meditations on the notion of another beginning of philosophy. He calls it inceptual thinking. The key work for me in that series of books is contributions to philosophy of the event, but there are other ones as well. And these make thematic the idea that at the end of Western philosophy, at the end of metaphysics, you know, once the door has slammed shut, we can get back to, not to an earlier stage, but back to the origin of that whole dramatic process, back to the disclosure of being itself. Because we learn, I know this is kind of abstract, but still, you know, Heidegger, I think, gives all that he has to make this an accessible insight for us. And the view is that the whole history of Western philosophy as a distortion and alienation and uprooting teaches us something about being itself. And when we include that a little, that extra bit of understanding, what does it mean that being has concealed itself from us over our history? What does it mean that being has withdrawn itself from us over our history? If we can include that in our understanding, then we can, as it were, have, well, be easier to, uh, to say this with images, but we can once again, we can re-inaugurate that original moment where being surges forth into our thinking or where somehow it gives us access to itself. In other words, to put this differently, where the Heideggerian left had just operations of displacement, Heidegger has, in addition, operations of grounding, of sheltering, of a hearth, of constructing. Again, not a construction from nothing, a construction that receives and preserves and shelters a sort of philosophical gift. Okay, it does so in language and it does so in, even in institutions. My crude understanding of Heidegger is that I, I read him, he helped me see that philosophy, at least as we receive it, can very easy, easily be seen as a technique by which we, if you will, master being and give it its proper conceptual form, uh, so to speak, so we can possess it. So uh, philosophy becomes a kind of certain kind of technology, a kind of odd sort of super high level technology. And I think that really, he thought that was definitely a dead end. And then I, I was influenced by, for me, the kind of in this turn towards the inceptual, the two concepts that really affected me were Galassenheit, this notion it's a kind of preparation of the heart. You have to let go. As I tell people, you can't hear unless you're quiet. <laughs> and then, uh, is it lictum clearing? Mm-hmm. Which is yes. both a, a, it's both a, a place in the forest, but it's also an activity. We have to, it's a paradoxical activity. So it's, I see those two as related to each other. The letting go and the clearing are, are both different. One is more subjective connotations. The other has more, if you will, objective connotations. I yeah, I never understood why this. I guess, I mean, I'm a theologian, and so these are easy for me to kind of 
translate into the classical Christian mystical tradition. I mean, it's not that complicated. And I think part of the resistance, whether it's the post-war resistance to this aspect of Heidegger comes from the fact that they're all, these are all motifs that are a calling for new authorities or new gods. He speaks that way sometimes about new gods, doesn't he? Uh, yes, he does. And this is frightening, I think, yeah. to the post-war, the post-war mind. Whereas Dugan really thinks that this is this is where we need to do our kind of work. And he does, and you go through, give, give the reader some sense of, he does kind of reach for these, speculates about the things in our lives and in our in our life world that have power to shape and form and guide and govern. Yeah. So I want to say one thing just preliminarily, which is that there's more in Dugan's political theory and political philosophy than Heidegger, but Heidegger is on his own terms, the deepest foundation and somehow the center of it all. So just in case people are listening and they're interested in Dugan, they're less interested in Heidegger, they should know that, you know, there's a book on geopolitics, which is somehow independently interesting books on, as I say, ethnosociology that is somehow independently interesting. But he has said that Heidegger is the center and the deepest foundation of all mm. of this. That's why it justifies uh, that special concern, I would say. And then another thing is that you mentioned that there's some ability as that you have as a theologian to understand some of the mystical parallels, let's say, or mystical aspects of Heidegger's thought. And interestingly enough, parts of his thought that are left out of the picture by political theorists and political philosophers have been appropriated in completely different contexts, like in some cases, in even uh, like life coaching contexts, because there they take the notion of a clearing and of a listening, and they apply it to, you know, the sub-political realm of people's personal relationships in a way that's actually quite fascinating. And in my view, even helpful for understanding Heidegger. But what Dugan does is he takes the ignored political dimension of Heidegger's inceptual thinking, that implicit political dimension of Heidegger's inceptual thinking, and says, we have an opportunity to experiment with the explication, with making explicit what's implicit in Heidegger's inceptual thought. He didn't do it. Heidegger doesn't have equivalent works to Dugan's that take the basic insights of conceptual thinking and start to apply them to all of the areas, you know, Heidegger has here and there nomic sentences that we have to ponder. But Dugan is trying to take those threads and pull them, pull them, pull them, pull them until we have something complete that we could look at. Yeah, it's preliminary, but still it's uh, even as a preliminary work, it's complete. So I'll give you a simple example. I mentioned earlier that for liberalism, the individual is a key concept and that Dugan rejects it. He likewise rejects the centrality of the class. He doesn't reject class analysis, but he says it's not a class first political theory and it's not a state first political theory. So what does he put at the center of his political theory? One formulation is Dasein. Yes, Dugan says the actor of the fourth political theory is Dasein. But he also says in another formulation, it's the people. Now, the people, not as like the people versus the elites, but the people, we could say in an ethnic sense, the folk, the Russian word is narod. I think the Hebrew is am. There are all of these parallels, but the notion of the people. And Dugan says, let's take Heidegger's existential analytic of Dasein. In other words, his work on the relationship of language 
to being. And let's try to run that operation on the Russian language to see whether it's a one-to-one parallel with what it is in German and in English, or whether it reveals something unique about Russian existence, about Russian people interpreted existentially. So for example, his second book on Heidegger called Martin Heidegger, The Possibility of Russian Philosophy, it does that. It looks at the... So I want to just try to explain this briefly because it's, it's, in my view, such a nice operation. It's so insightful and unusual uh, in my experience at it, at any rate. His first Heidegger book said, I'm going to give you all the standard German terms from Heidegger's, let's say, being in time in a translation in the Russian, and we can treat the translation as equivalent. So in other words, we're treating the translation as a one-to-one. In the second Heidegger book, he says, it may not be the case that when you talk about being in Russian, it is the same as when you talk about it in German. And if we can put our finger on the nuances and on the differences, we may learn something about the difference in the underlying people and in the way that the underlying people relates to being itself. I'll give you one brief example. A lot of the words that in German Heidegger had to invent neologisms for, or they're kind of, they seem somehow contrived in the German, even, you know, for a native German speaker, still his formulations would seem somehow contrived or their neologisms, all these hyphenations and so on. Dugan says when he runs the same process of looking at the language in Russian, that Russian has perfectly fitting words from everyday language. You don't need to have the contrived formulation. So many Russian words, they have the root for to be or the root for being built into them. And so he says, this is quite interesting. If I have to talk about being in German, I need all of these contrived formulations that are hyphenated and unusual. But when I say the same thing in Russian, I have a this stock of ordinary terms that already are rooted in the language of being and the way that they're formed. And he concludes from that uh, provisionally that Russians are, are closer to being than Germans. And their proximity to being, they're so close to being that they haven't yet had the distance necessary or the schism or division necessary, the logos necessary to begin to philosophize. So why is there no Russian philosophy? Yes, there are Russians that we call philosophers. Yes, you know, we could go buy an encyclopedia of Russian philosophy, but he, he says they're just, you know, they're not properly speaking Russian philosophers. There is no Russian philosophy. Russian philosophy hasn't begun yet because the Russian people hasn't yet made that, that break or schism in their relationship to being. So again, as abstract as that might seem, as strange as it might seem, it's an example of how he takes a Heideggerian methodology, applies it to a specific area, namely the question of the distinctness of Russian people. He leaves it open that you could apply it in other cases and in other languages. And you come out the opposite side of that, not with a globalism, not with an individualism, not with a nationalism, but with what he considers an existential pluralism of peoples and civilizations. So it's tricky, but it's interesting. You've received a lot of pushback in your work with Dugan that really amounts to people, professional, other philosophers, academics saying, you shouldn't be talking about that man. He's a bad man, or he's an ideologue for a bad cause. But you end, I think, with a call to, it's a version of, 
if we don't study history, history, we're condemned to repeat it. <laughs> it's so much like what in the world would an intellectual possibly be if he's not interested in understanding the mentality behind, you know, clearly a major force in contemporary events. What explains the the kind of see no evil, hear no evil? It's a good question. It's true that I have faced opposition for my work on Dugan. People who are interested in the backstory can find some things about it that were published in the Canadian national press and some things that were written about it. In the US, it wasn't easy. There was a big drama at my university department over my work on Dugan, not over the quality of my work, over the fact of my work. You yes, know, that was over. what I'm thinking of. So that's... Um, and I think also, it's the, you're very clear in the what you wrote for us that this isn't Great. You you commend Dugan as someone who can illuminate for us possibilities, both alternatives to the modern political theories, valuable in itself, and then an aspect, an important aspect of Heidegger that is largely suppressed. Very important if you're interested in the history of philosophy. Uh, but you're very clear that Alexander Dugan, the whatever the activist, you know, you're more than willing to criticize or distance yourself from. But nevertheless, it seems as though we live in a time when I, I think it's a kind of a historical nominalism. If we refuse to acknowledge that this man exists, then he won't exist. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I mean, you're allowed to say that he exists, provided that you say all the right bad things about him, that right. he's a fascist or he's a neo-fascist, that he's a warmonger, that he's an imperialist. You know, you can somehow make fun of him by reducing him to a, a caricature of a Russian conservative. You can say that he has ties. And some, some of these criticisms are half right, but they're not used as criticisms that could be examined. They're used as ways of maligning the thought and closing down any prospect of taking it seriously. Now, Dugan's not the only person that happens to. When I was studying Leo Strauss as an undergraduate, I also had professors telling me, you know, don't study him, he's a fascist, or he's a, you know, if you're studying him, you support the blood for oil wars in Iraq because he taught all of the Bush team yes. about noble lies. So, you know, there are other thinkers and Heidegger, needless to say, oh, don't you be, be careful. You know, he doesn't belong on a philosophy shelf. He belongs on a Nazism shelf. And we're not going to talk about Nietzsche. We're not going to talk about Schmidt. So I should say that my underlying impulse was to say the following, that after the Second World War, the spectrum of thinkable thoughts was artificially constrained for understandable reasons to basically liberalism and the left alternative. And that all of the serious work that falls outside of that was dismissed baby with the bathwater. And therefore, if you have some interest in thinking broadly and deeply and clearly, then there's an implicit task to restore balance to the spectrum. That means recovering what's valuable about Heidegger, recovering what's valuable about Nietzsche, recovering what's valuable about Schmidt, and so on. I'll even mention a reactionary thinker I just personally have discovered in the last few days, whose, whose work I'm enjoying, even though there's not much of it available in English. That's uh, Nicola Gomez Davila, I think his name is, a ca yes, um, yes. Colombian Catholic reactionary. So all of these people that we maybe would never have heard of, and you'd never know there was anything valuable there because it's verboten. So I don't like that. Because if philosophy is some attempt at a broad, comprehensive, deep understanding of the problems, we're not even talking about yet about the answers, just at least of the questions and alternatives, then you have no chance of getting that off the ground when you've lopped off at least one third of the spectrum of thinkable thoughts. 
So the whole work of recovering Dugan and his reception of Heidegger and all of that, that's part of that broader project. But people are worried. I mean, when you study somebody who's dead and old, somehow it's safer, although not everywhere, yes. because there's still opposition in some places. You don't, don't, don't take Plato too seriously. Don't take Aristotle too seriously. There's the whole post-modernization of the classics departments that are now making sure that the, everything comes with a disclaimer that all these people were racist, horrible, and whatever else they were. But still, when they're old and they're dead, it's safer. But when they're alive and active and a force in politics for the enemy, which is how they're, you know, Dugan is, Dugan is perceived as, and Dugan is in some sense, actually, you know, an intellectual thinker for the enemies of the West. So he's an enemy, he's alive, he's controversial. And you, they would say to me impl implicitly, sometimes explicitly, you know, are making his thought attractive and are making his thought appealing. And basically you're aiding the enemy. So I think one of the things that the study of Dugan brought to the forefront for me I mean, it brought many things to the forefront for me, including the hypocrisy of supposed defenders of free inquiry and of serious study, because there were more than a few of them. But one of the things it brings to the study is Strauss's point that it's true that there are problems that arise when you want to take seriously at a philosophical level, something that is in some sense dangerous at a political level. Now, my view is at the very least, we can respond with, you have to know your enemy, if you consider Russia an enemy, you have to know its best thinkers. You just, you're not doing yourself any favors, quite the opposite. If you don't strive to know your enemy, if you don't strive to understand them the way they know themselves. So that I consider that as imperative of strategic empathy. Like we would want to make sure we read China's most outstanding theoreticians and Iran's most outstanding theoreticians and so on, because we have that imperative, just like they study America's most important, influential and outstanding theoreticians. That's number one. But number two, Within the general topic of understanding where modern liberalism has gone in the wrong direction, you know, as a sort of self-criticism, we all take seriously thoughtful critics of contemporary liberalism, even within the West. You know, people are reading your Mazzoni and Patrick Deneen and your books and other commentators who are pointing out what it means for Western postmodern liberalism to have run amok. Dugan offers us a set of insights into that problem. So we could potentially learn something, not just about our enemy, but about ourselves. It's something that may be helpful to us. We may be able to borrow from him. So all of these kinds of nuances, unfortunately, went out the window and they do that sometimes. And everything was reduced to, you know, are you working for the Kremlin? Uh, you know, why do you love fascists? <laughs> and I, in fact, I had, you know, people, there's some Jewish part of this story too, that, oh, you know, don't you know that Dugan is this and that, and he would have done this and that, just like, don't you know that Heidegger, how could you as a Jew study Heidegger, all of these types, at people's fears and their need to protect their professional reputation, which is, again, understandable, is different, there are different imperatives. The imperative to protect your professional reputation is different from, not totally unrelated, but different from the imperative to understand yourself in the world fundamentally. Mm -hmm. So in some cases, the people that didn't like my work on Dugan, they made clear what they consider more important. You know, I don't think I was ever telling people, I mean, I know for a fact, I was never telling people and never implying that to take Dugan seriously means you have to go expatriate, go to Russia, join the Russian armed forces, start killing Ukrainians, you know, hate, hate liberals, smear people through the mud. Dugan we should bring him under, and I, I don't remember whether I mentioned this in the essay or not, 
But Strauss has this view, it's safer to view the low in light of the high than the high in light of the low. That's our task. Dugan gives us something valuable to think about. Whether we like him or not is irrelevant. He gives us something valuable to think about. And if we, if our initial inclination is to drag it all through the mud in the worst possible light, we're doing ourselves a disservice. So that's, that's how I see it. I've had the good fortune. I just want to put in one more thing here. Even though my work on Dugan got me effectively blacklisted from university, which maybe was a blessing in disguise. I don't want to burn bridges, but let's say it was maybe a blessing in disguise. It's proven to be one so far. Uh, even though I was effectively blacklisted from my work on Dugan, I've been very fortunate to get to continue to teach not just Dugan, but Dugan, Heidegger, Strauss, and all of these other figures and to write about them because there are enough people who think it's important. Even if there are academics who want to shut it down, there are enough people who think that it's important. And I'm very glad that First Things was willing to have me write something like this and willing, willing to run with it, despite what maybe for you too is some blowback or some prospect of criticism for, uh, for getting involved with someone like him. I'm all for empathetic understanding of our adversaries. And I'm even more concerned that we find sources to engage in fruitful self-criticism so that we in the liberal West can actually sustain our project in a healthy way that, that, that actually serves the original impulses of, of, our, of, our, of our best traditions. So thank you so much for this essay and thanks for your courage in persevering with this very interesting figure. And so anyway, thanks. Thanks a lot for being on the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me.